Coming up next, it's what you've been waiting for. Welcome to The Bookening. My name is Nathan Albertson. I'm your humble and obedient host. I actually saw a trailer for not the Ian McKellen, Patrick Stewart version, but a different version of Waiting for Godot, the play, which starred Ian McKellen. And Ian McKellen was in this trailer. It was like a TV ad for a play performed at the theater. And it cut to him and he said, what are you waiting for? And the idea is, what are you waiting for to go see Waiting for Godot? That was the thing that some hack came up with, Jake. Some hack ad writer probably what i would have come up with too i might have come up with it too but i don't know i like to think i would have done something to make it put it in some ironic context or something don't you think brandon put it in an ironic context i mean you can't just you can't just without winking say what are you waiting for wink yeah yeah if the wink if you're gonna do that at all yeah, especially would, with a play like this one. Yeah, exactly. Given the play, it's kind of a good place to wink, I would think. Maybe the guy just didn't want to match wits with Beckett or something like that. I don't know. Maybe I should introduce us. No, I don't think so. This should be an absurd episode. Okay, banana. Banana. <laughs> Potato. Let's kill ourselves. That could be the only solution in the face of the uh, void is the certainty of suicide. That's the only important philosophical question. Thanks. <sighs> You're welcome. <laughs> I think we just did a better job summing up that play than anything else we're going to say today. But that play and existentialism, middle 20th century existential philosophy. Oh, brother. That's a quote of uh, suicide is the most important philosophical question. That's Camus. Yeah. Oh, is it Camus? Uh, Camus. I think you and I were talking about this off mic, Jake. Or no, we maybe we talked about this on our cigar on video thing. Camus is far and away the existentialist I would most like to read or yeah. most enjoy reading i would be most interested in reading yes it, i don't know in the past i have enjoyment. gotten the most out of Camus because he's a good stylist and like the right. stranger stuff like that it's right. it kind of reads like a book yeah like with uh, characters and stuff and things that happen and kind of i don't know i guess no exit maybe sartre but I, I, we're not here to talk about that today we're here to talk about beckett and Brandon's right. I won't introduce him. I'm not going to introduce Jake. You nope. shouldn't. I'm not going to introduce me. <sighs> I won't tell them that I'm your humble and obedient host. I won't tell them who the scholar that is a baller of reading is. I won't say who the pastor that's a master of reading is. Who's a master of reading? Because yeah, what does sure. it really matter? It doesn't. Nothing matters. Anyone could be anything at Anyone any time. See. Really. Nothing really matters to me. <sighs> Are you aware that my mom just killed a man? <laughs> Whoa. Was it your mom or was it you? No, mama just killed a man. Oh. But did you put a gun against his head? She pulled the trigger. That much is true. Do you really unironically think that he says that his mom killed a man in that song? Mama, comma, I, just killed a man. Put a gun against his head, pulled my trigger. Now he's he, he's telling his mama. Mama, mama, life had just begun and now I've gone and thrown it all away. I think mama 
He's gonna and this is far and away the best conversation we can have in this Beckett <laughs> episode. I think he's saying he's telling a story. Mama just killed a man. She <laughs> she took his gun, or at least his trigger. We know that much. Put the gun against this man's head. Pulled the trigger. Now he's dead. Mama, life had just begun. Now he, I've gone and thrown it all away. Yeah, probably because he called the police and on his mom. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. <sighs> hey, hey, Brandon. Hey. Brandon's over there pulling up his Beckett notes. I think that's what's happening or yeah, is. brushing up on Beckett. Maybe he called the police and he took the fall and that's why he has the whole trial. I was trying to find something, but I'm not finding end. it. And that's how he threw his life away is he called. It adds poignancy to when all the people are like, Galileo, Galileo, he's a real jerk or whatever they say. This Miller, no, we will not let him go. Biz Miller, no, we yeah. will not let him go. <sighs> For. All right. Now, Brandon, you're actually, you actually just released a seven-volume series of books called Brushing Up on Beckett. I did. Beckett is, a, is your favorite subject. He, he's a subject. I don't know. He's my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> this actually goes hand in hand with uh, the, the episode before this. The episode before this was... Was it the one that I'm trying to remember that we just did? Yes, it was. Which was? Not Trumpet of the Swan, but the other one. Yeah. Moon and Sixpence. Moon and Sixpence. Yeah. And these kind of go hand in hand. So Yeah. You know what? I can't do it. I'm not Beckett. This podcast needs order. My name is Nathan Albers and you're humble and I'm being it. This is Brandon Chastain, the scholar it, who's a baller of reading. No, maybe it's just maybe I'm just making my own order. Maybe I'm just imposing my you're imposing will. your own order onto the chaos onto the that is life. Chaos of the universe. But that's okay. You have to imagine. That's all right. Make Nathan. your own meaning. Go ahead. It's fine. The Whatever. most important thing it is. It doesn't affect anybody or anything anyway. As long as I can go to bed at night and I can imagine Nathan happy, then I'll be happy. There you go. So we got Brandon. I don't care. Either way, it's not going to make me happy. I'm just going to contemplate the finitude of man and the Sweet. infinitude of existence and the meaninglessness of it all. Well, it's the Ubermensch himself. The absolute absurdity of all things. Is Jake the Ubermensch? I think he might be. Oh, wow. <laughs> that explains so much. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> What's he doing? <laughs> <laughs> Jake just ripped his shirt off. For those of you who can't see, which is all of you. I'm the Superman. Does, he is. He is the Superman. The, the Uberman. Arguably a better translation. Uh, all right. What? what? Ubermensch is not a translation. Ubermensch is just... No, I know that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm saying Superman. Never mind. Okay. Now... I don't understand what you're saying, Nathan, but... Over... The Overman, is that what you mean? Superman I believe in your right to say whatever Overman? you want. Mm, it doesn't matter. Bring off... Nothing th- really matters. Nothing really matters. Bring authenticity to, to your language. That's all I ask. All right. Me. Authenticity. My name is Nathan. Uh-huh. That's Brandon. Yep. Over in the other corner is a big blue banana. And... <laughs> Yep. <laughs> I'm a banana. <laughs> thousand points to anyone who gets that reference. Uh, should I? You probably should. You but. would, I bet. Uh, you've seen it. Anyway, let's talk about Beckett. Okay. Yeah. No, no, it's the contextual Texan. It's not a big blue banana, folks. I lied. It's Jake. Uh, uh, My spoon is too big. Yeah, that's what I was thinking of. Uh, Brandon. Hey. Yeah, Beckett. Yeah. Context. Why? My What's the point? My spoon is too big. I give context, and then the stone just rolls right back down to the foot of the hill that I push it up every time, and then it rolls down again, and I keep pushing, 
and I never once ever get to stop giving context. My friend, let me introduce you to the Knight of Infinite Resignation. Go ahead. That's all. Brandon? Knight, say hi. Knight, Brandon. (laughs) Oh, hey, Knights. How are you doing? How are you doing, Hey, Brandon. (laughs) Me. So how'd you get the (laughs) The title? Knight of Infinite Resignation. How'd you get that name? That's the name that my parents gave to me, Brandon. So you are, is your first name the Knight then? The Knight of. The Knight of. The Knight of. The Knight of. Your middle name then is Infinite mm-hmm. Resignation. Mm-hmm. Huh. So it has nothing to do with like if any philosophical stance you have towards the world. I'm a very happy guy that works construction. Oh, why do you go by your full name then like that? Because I think it's cool. Oh, it's a great name, but. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. I like your name as well. So how'd you get into construction? You know, my dad worked, <laughs> worked construction. <laughs> my yeah. grandpa worked construction, and I decided to work construction. Do you find fulfillment in it? Every day I go home. Yeah. And I take a loaded gun. <laughs> and I put it in my closet because I'm so happy. <laughs> wow. Do you load the gun before you put I it I buy in? a new loaded gun from the store. <laughs> Every night. Every night. I yeah. take it home and I put it in my closet. Yeah, a gun, uh, closet full of loaded guns. I've got a closet full of loaded guns. Can I ask you a question? Yes. Do you ever have that loaded gun and then you're on the beach and the blinding reality of the sun and nature surrounding you and the absurdity of life cause you to kill someone randomly? <laughs> no, oh, but okay. are you... Would you be interested? Uh, like to buy one from you or to have you do this? I mean, I'm I'm open to anything. I'll try anything once. Okay, well, let's go down to the beach and let's see what happens. It's a date. All right. So, wait. <laughs> oh, no. The night of infinite resignation's leaving. Huh. That was crazy. That was really fun. Yeah. So, this context is already a thousand times better than most of them are. <laughs> <laughs> we had a visit from somebody last week, too. I forget who. Was it Britney Spears? <laughs> yeah, I, think it I think it might have been Britney Spears. Yeah, that's right. We've had two great characters show Oops. up. <laughs> did it again. <laughs> yeah, she was a little toxic. Brandon, go ahead. <laughs> go ahead. Okay. Do I have to? <laughs> no, I really you don't, don't want you to. You don't have to. This is one of the. What concepts. if we just you have to what, do anything? Nobody has to do anything. Yeah. What if we gave Beckett his own by doing a completely pointless episode of the? That's basically the what podcast. we've been doing so far, anyway. It's yeah. about as good. Problem is, it doesn't feel that much different than other episodes <laughs> of the Bookening. It's only if we don't get to somewhere meaningful, right? But serious. But how do you ever get to anything meaningful? All you do is create meaning by trying to add meaning to nothingness and unre and things that are already absurd. True. That's all I do. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know about you. And haven't you ever been trying to cook like from a recipe only to find oh, the, the futility of our attempts to bring order into chaos. Yeah. And how are we going to do it, Estragon? Estragon? We truly are burdened with the Sisyphean task. Yeah. Nothing for it. I think that the Sisyphean task is to make nothing, actually. To make nothing? Yeah. To just don't, not do anything? Which is what this play proves. And that's my hot take. Leave the stupid rock at the bottom of the hill, Sisyphus. What were you thinking? Just go home, Sisyphus. I think he's in hell, Jake. I think he has to. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Should we just try to piece together? Can I just like offer insights randomly and then we'll see what happens? Yeah. See if people can You know what, Brandon? See if people Uh, can I've got a suggestion. Yeah. Don't start with bio. Yeah. I want to start with this thought. Okay. Uh, I realized that Joyce had gone as far as one could in the direction of knowing more in control of one's material. 
He was always adding to it. You only have to look at his proofs to see that. I realized that my own way was in impoverishment, in lack of knowledge, and in taking away, in subtracting rather than adding. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah, who said that? Tolkien? That's, yeah, that's Tolkien. Okay. <laughs> that's how Tolkien went about creating his, um, his art. In fact, in future, his work would focus on poverty. So this comes from a scholar, as he put it on man as a non-knower and as a non-canner. That's what this guy said about himself. Man. As a non-knower and as Dude, a non-canner. This guy is so deep. Why do we, why ha- have there been books after him? Why have we never done this sort of thing before? I know. I mean, we somehow like, successfully avoided la tranche. Only to stumble into this. <laughs> I just, you know, we could have spared ourselves the agony of producing this show. If you know we what we did? Started with Godot. We've been waiting for Godot this whole there time. There was one. Really there is. There actually, Godot. people can rest assured that one benefit did come out of this. Yeah. That I hit my head so hard against this stupid play, trying <laughs> to watch it, that I have decided to completely reshape <laughs> at least one <laughs> chapter of my dissertation. So. <laughs> I will not be having this guy because I do not want to have to read him anymore. There you go. I didn't really mind it that much, personally. <laughs> well, I didn't well, watch it. I read it. Yeah. Watching it helped. I mean, and I didn't have the patience to sit and imagine it out because I, come on, how much I've stewed in so much existential philosophy and crap that I just don't have any pay for it. Yeah. It, it is the waste of life that it says existence is existentialism is yeah yeah you can go read go read ecclesiastes get to the end of the matter and you have discovered everything that existentialism has to offer and you found the answer to it all problem solved solomon in fewer words than all of them and better words and better words more poetic words he he gets it he nails it to the wall and it's over. I agree. And yeah, I mean, I agree a hundred percent. And yet Beckett is talented. You watch, you watch actors put this on and it's like this dialogue works. There's rhythm to it. There's poetry to it. There's life to it. These characters, it's it's actually moving. I mean, that's what I was going to say. Let's go backwards. Let's work our way towards context. How about that? That'll make it a little weird. So, I was being a, a bit well, a bit absurd. Mm-hmm. Um, in this, only his talent is unquestionable. Yeah, and so it this is did brilliance to do something as stupid as this play. Yeah, this did and convince make it me that and he's moving. Actually. He's yeah. not the guy that I want for my dissertation. Mm-hmm. It did not convince me that I never want to listen or watch read Beckett again. I, I actually. So I watched the Canadian broadcast version that I have at home, and I was enjoying it just fine. So I had to finish the rest. I had to read the rest, but I made it through Act One. And when you have talented actors up on the screen, like you said, playing uh, playing it out for you, it's you can see the rhythm, you can see the the humor behind it. Yeah, a lot I of its clips. It was amusing. A lot of its tongue in cheek. You wonder how seriously Beckett actually took some of this. Mm-hmm. Well, I read that just, Beckett wanted it performed much more archly and over the top than people usually actually play it like mm-hmm. somebody i don't know i read an account of a production put on by beckett and all the actors were surprised by him telling them to ham it up yeah m- more than they well the canadian version does it pretty well it's it's pretty funny and i think the one with um mckellen and 
Patrick Stewart. Yeah, which isn't available to just like watch, but it from looks, the clips, it looks it looks like they. And so that was up. so Beckett found a lot of his answers through humor, mm-hmm. and if you just look at it as comedy, some of it is pretty funny, mm-hmm. and the absurdity of it, it's on the level of like you know, an absurd children a children's poem in the sense that it just. If you just look at it at that level, not as philosophy, not as trying to um, make a statement, make a statement. But the statement that it does make, if it makes one, is a statement of conservatism, actually. I mean, I've always thought that there's something, I don't know, the example I always use is Homer Simpson. Everybody laughs at Homer Simpson, right? Why do people laugh at Homer Simpson? If we actually all thought that dads sucked and that there was no such thing as fatherhood built in the world it wouldn't be funny that this doofus was failing at being a father but because we all have a built-in expectation that a father is dignified that a father provides well that a father this that a father that it's funny when homer simpson doesn't do it and so you watch something like this and it's like as much as it strains it can't prove anything in the realm of absurdism it can only like the only reason the play is interesting is because life isn't absurd you know, they're talking about hanging themselves. Well, why is that funny? Why is that interesting? Because you don't do that. You're not that casual about your own life. The entire interest of the play derives from the fact that it's madness, mm-hmm. as opposed to not madness, which is a construct that we all innately have. Yeah. Which is an example of how, okay, but, okay, so my first question is, what does Beckett actually think, though? Yeah. Right? Like, Beckett is not making that yet. I think you're right in a in a, the most meta sense possible. Right. And that's, all, that's, I, that's, not that's what, all I mean it. Yeah. And it's what all these existentialist and atheistic philosophers do. They take the machinery, the apparatus of the world as it is, as God made it and God's moral law, and they drive it around and they they use it all the time to uh, try try to make points that could not possibly be made or understood or even comprehended, except that the very realities that they're trying to disprove allow them to, I mean, that was a kind of, that was a really no, I, I know what you're, way Jackson of, Pollock only exists in relation to Michelangelo. Yeah. Postmodern poetry only exists because it's playing off of an innate understanding of what actual poetry is unless you start with sense and meaning you can't actually build on it yeah the chaos makes no statement it has no it's just it is chaos and and so the chaos in and of itself or the absurdism in this case is just everything everything about it that works works because it's rebellion against the the created order and a created order that we all innately understand and Accept. Accept and agree on. And that Beckett accepts uh, intuitively, fundamentally, and operates his whole life based on. Mm -hmm. Well. There we go. There we go. So he's pointless. (laughs) Well, Brandon, why don't you tell us? Tell you what? About Beckett and whether he's pointless or not and what he was trying to do with this play. and. Well, I mean. Whatever you want. Where did I have that? You've got a microphone. Yeah, I know. I know. So here's on, this is from, from 1952. This is part of his introduction. I don't know who Godot is. I don't even know above all, don't know if he exists. And I don't know if they believe in him or not. 
those two are waiting for him, the other two who pass by towards the end of each of the two acts, they must be to break up the monotony. All I knew I showed. It's not much, but it's enough for me by a wide margin. I'll even say that I would have been satisfied with less as for wanting to find in all that a broader, loftier meaning to carry away from the performance along with a program of the S. I cannot see the point of it, but it must be possible. Estrogen, Vladimir, Pazzo, Lucky, their time and their space, I was able to know them a little bit, but far from the need to understand, maybe they owe you explanations, let them supply it without me. They and I are through with each other. Ah, that's a nice cryptic. <laughs> yeah, that's, so that's Beckett's own explanation of what this play was supposed to mean. <laughs> <laughs> I think that kind of gets to the essence of the question here is that what did Beckett mean by his work? A lot of it is pretty obscure because Beckett himself was pretty closed off about it. He didn't really talk a lot about his meaning. Instead, he just created these plays that were... So I think it helps to know that as a young man, so he grew up in Dublin, Ireland, a fairly wealthy family, happy childhood. His dad was someone who made enough money that they had like a tennis court at their home and stuff like that. So he And he went off to a relatively good school. He got to teach English at the Sorbonne for a while, so he, where he would live most of his life then in France. So he wasn't poor, and he didn't have to live the struggling life of the artist. Like, he wasn't, in other words, a William Strickland, mm -hmm. or Charles, whatever his name Charles, was. Charles. Yeah. Charles Strickland. In the sense that out of this hunger and drive that he had, he was willing to ruin his life to set the world on fire through this vision. But he was successful, in the world. Oh, so, but it's important to know that when he was a young man first getting started with his writing, he got to know James Joyce. Mm. And he actually was, he helped compile the notes that would become Finnegan's Wake. And we've talked enough about Joyce on this podcast for people to know that Joyce was fairly ob oblique when it came to telling people what he th thought his works meant. Yeah. So he, he wrote Ulysses and he said, basically let that, make the professors argue for years, right? And there's a lot of that to Beckett as well. There's this intentional obscurity to his works where he's drawing from the philosophies and stuff that are all around him. And we'll talk about some, we can talk about some of that, the theater of the absurd, existentialism, um, phenomenology, all these things that went into this particular mo movement within postmodernism. But really, Beckett was, I think, intentionally closed mouth about what his works meant. And it's because he wanted them to seem um, cryptic. He wanted them to seem... Profound. Profound, yeah. Well, so he should have been. It's more romantic that way. I mean, yeah. if I was Beckett, I wouldn't tell anybody. But yeah, so he would direct some of his own works, like you said. But even then, it's pretty difficult to pin down exactly. So Beckett didn't have like a treatise that he wrote saying, this is what I mean by things. You can see through the span of his work what he was getting at, and it was this otherworldly, weird, strange absurdism that, especially towards the end of his life, became very minimalistic as well. And so that was where he would head with some of his later novels, like Malloy, Malone Dies, those, and also some of his later weird plays, like the ones where people are just buried in the rocks, like up to their necks. You get some pretty strange stuff that happens with his later plays. So asking the question, what he intended is, that's basically all we're going to get out of that question. <laughs> um, but we pretty much know everything we'd even want to know about him as far as his bio too. It's not, it's not, there's not a whole lot to say about him. He had a very successful life as a writer. I guess one fun fact is he was born on Good Friday. There you go. 
But yeah, like I said, he went to Trinity College Dublin, and then he ended up in France, where he would spend the most rest of his life. In fact, the Waiting for Godot is actually on entendant Godot, Godot or on on entendant. How are you saying in French? But it was originally a French play. We read it in translation, which is strange to think. Did he translate it? He translated it, but yeah, it was originally a French play, and that's how most of his works were. As they, he was an Irish expatriate writer in France who wrote mostly in French and then translated into his native language. And so, it's weird to get a play that is in his native language, but is actually a translation. But I think Beckett probably took a kind of a perverse humor in it Mm -hmm. because that really is, I think you have to understand, to really understand Beckett is you have to remember that he's Irish and he kind of has that native Irish um, mischievousness and also grumpiness to him. So like Seamus Heaney, right? There's always this grumpy humor throughout his poems. Mm -hmm. um, And so the same thing with Beckett. And so he got er, this absurdism, but he gave it this Irish twist as well. He was first, he wanted to be a poet, and then he got into plays in the 40s when he was already, would have been in his late 30s, is really when he started to have his first successes. In fact, Waiting for Godot, where's the exact date so I can give the right date? 1952 was when it was the English version, but the British version was much earlier than that, right? 1948. And so, so the late 40s. And then after that, so he quickly got fame as a, an important writer. Um, it took him until his 40s to find his voice because he felt like he was always living in the shadow of, of James Joyce. He was always trying to do something similar to Joyce. And then it wasn't until he found that, so like that quote I read said, Joyce was always by adding knowledge that just led to the weight of realizing that there's too much right? There's too much noise in the world. Mm -hmm. He realized that his art was by negation, by taking all that away and being as small and minimalistic as possible. And so that gets down to even his set design. Like if you've seen any uh, production of Waiting for Godot, it's usually very minimalistic set. You have the tree and then you have the road. That's really all you need, right? And then you just have a very small cast of characters, right? It's them and then the two guys that show up, Lucky and Bozo or whatever his name is, Mm -hmm. Bucko, and then the boy. (laughs) And Godot, who never makes an appearance. But guys, did you guys realize that Godot, if you take the O and T off, it's God? What? I know. It's almost like he's making a theological statement. It's pretty deep. So deep. That's so deep. insane. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, um, I don't know what to make of that, but I just wanted to throw that out there on the table. So uh, it's, a, it's another fun fact to realize that later in his life, in the 60s, he Wait won- a second, Brandon. My, yeah. my, my mind is not being done being blown here. Yeah. Go ahead. Take take your time. You mean one possible interpretation of this is uh-huh. that these two men are waiting for God yeah. as a parable who may or may not exist and they just are absurdly dancing around and ordering their absurd lives around this being that promises to take care of them that hasn't ever shown up and cared for them and may not even exist yeah that's that may be well i i you know i totally that changes absolutely everything about how i view this play yeah and even the small echoes in the beginning where they're talking about the thief on the cross and all that Mm -hmm. stuff oh yeah that maybe you know they're in the position of the two the guys the thieves waiting for a christ who's not really going to come man the tree itself might be 
like a, a cross a symbol? symbol. Oh my goodness. Guys, Beckett was real deep. It's so deep that later in life he would win a Nobel Prize. Oh my goodness. Well, that, that goes to show you just how deep yeah. he is. Yeah. Just like he and John Paul Sartre, man, they would win those Nobel Prizes. Big wins for existentialism. Yeah. Yeah. He liked to do everything late in life. 69, he won the Nobel Prize. He also, like in 1961, when he was already in his 50s, he got married. Nice. And apparently was having an affair with a widow also at the same time. I mean, he's a great guy. <laughs> it seems like it. <laughs> By the way, we're not being sarcastic about any of this. No. Guys, this is, this is worth being serious about. Mm-hmm. This is real worth being serious about. And oh, so, brother. and then uh, eventually he died like everybody does. He's not alive anymore. He didn't live forever. It's, his existential absurdism did not help him to live forever, except he did live for a long time. I did not realize <laughs> so, that. So it actually helped him a little bit. How, how, yeah. how long did he go? I just always forget that he lived so long. 1989. Nice. Yeah. Beckett lived during our, us. Yeah, he was when we were just a wee little lads. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wee little lads. Wee little lads. Oh, that's probably how you'd say it too. Yeah. Ah, oh, look at the wee little lads. He'd say it in French and then translate it back. Yeah, it'd be fun to read this yeah. play like this. Hey, oh, oh Hestrigon. Oh. <laughs> Let's go hang ourselves. <laughs> How's it sound? Ah, <laughs> uh, Godot. Ah, uh, Beckett. Anything you want to say about Beckett? I don't want to say anything about Beckett. Those were the important facts that, I mean... I barely want to listen to you say stuff about Beckett. Was it that boring, Nathan? Was <laughs> no. it that boring? No, it was good. It was good. Yeah. <laughs> I can't go on. I can't go on. I must go on. I will go on. There's you. A, a loose quote from one of his trilogies. So uh, I guess one other thing to note about him is he's, so he started off, he has books of poetry, and then he also has these plays that he's known for. Crap's Last Tape is pretty good. It's about an old man who's listening to um, recordings of his younger self. And so it's a autobiographical play. But apparently, one of the lines in there is supposed to suggest what Beckett would later realize is his uh, major insight. And it's, it's clear to me, at last, the dark I have always struggled to keep under is in reality my most. And then being very postmodern at that point in the play, crap, fast forwards. Because it's all centering, the, the play is very sad. It's centering around this moment with this girl that crap is lost. And he goes back and in his old age, he's realizing now he's wasted his life and he can't go back to that moment. And so he keeps trying to replay it through this recording. That part's actually pretty moving and sad. But this was supposed, according to Beckett himself, this clear to me at last that the dark I have always struggled to keep under is in reality my most. And apparently the words he had intended to end with would precious ally. So in other words, the futility of life, the inability of us, life to go on, the um, absurdity the ignorance, the impotence, the stupidity of things, right? All these things. This was his big revelation. This is the darkness, the stupidity, the ignorance, the inability to go on, the impotence, right? And uh, I mean, I guess I should apologize to people. There are some things in Waiting for Godot I had forgotten about. (laughs) But that was the darkness, and that became his precious ally. And that's how he finally was able to break with James Joyce and become Beckett. That's how he became Batman. <laughs> That's how he did it. <laughs> to get that right out of my mouth. <laughs> Is that what you were going to say? That was my contribution. Yeah. You stole it Beckett from me. begins. <laughs> uh, great minds, Jake. <laughs> we were both going the same direction. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Someone was going to seize the moment. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> got the Beatles, you got Dylan, you got Jake and Brandon with the Beckett comment. Oh, brother. Okay. So yeah, and so that's it, the darkness. And so what was the darkness? Well, gentlemen, <laughs> I really don't want to do this. <laughs> no, Brandon, do it. I don't want to go on. I can't go on. You can't go on? I can't go on. You, you can hang. must go on. I must go on. There's a tree over there. I can't go I've on. I've got, got a belt. belt. <laughs> <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah, here's the, here's the quote. I can't go on. I'll go on. That's it. I can't go on. I'll go on. That's from, is it from Malloy or Malone Dies? It's one of those. Oh, I was making, well, in good absurdism fashion, I'm forgetting what I'm even talking about. <laughs> I was making a point that he also has that very famous trilogy so uh, his novels, later works, I can always forgive, forget the, uh, the unnameable Malone dies. So it's Malloy, Malone dies, and the unnameable. Anyways, these are his prose works. And so not only is he, the point being, in absurd fashion, being very long to get to, mm-hmm. really the only point I was trying to make is he wasn't just known for his plays, but also for these novels. <laughs> These are the postmodern <laughs> novels. Like, so if you were to, if you wanted to go and get an example of when we talk about postmodernism and I guess the equivalent of Jackson Pollock in language, go and read the trilogy. It's, uh, I had to read it for a graduate class and it is something else. It makes very little sense. It's just basically stream of consciousness, but the stream of consciousness of a, a hobo in Ireland or France. And oh boy, it is something. But actually, I don't recommend you read it because if Waiting for Godot, if any of those parts scandalized you, then multiply that by 10. At pretty much every other paragraph has something along those lines. By the way, to all our dirty hobo listeners, I'm sorry. The views of Brandon sure Chester do not reflect. I'm sure you guys are great. Hope you can find some tips to your um, mittens next winter. Yeah, the finger's sticking out. Yep. <laughs> this is what... <laughs> <laughs> this is great stuff, guys. Oh, I'm glad there's not a tree. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad I don't wear belts. Uh, so that's Beckett. Cool. Did that provide any insight to the play? Do you guys want to go and talk no. about the play a little bit some more? Yeah, let's talk about the play some more. What were the questions that, what was the question Jake had on the, oh, is the chaos only interesting because order exists? Mm-hmm. So is, I is, think we just premised that the chaos is only interesting was, because order. So that's what Jake was yeah. recommending. He yeah. loves the chaos because he hates the order, but he only appreciates the chaos because order exists for him to hate. Yeah, this play doesn't. Said? This play doesn't work, and <laughs> yes. if it's not in reference to plays that have stories <laughs> like Shakespeare, it's not like yeah, in reference to a world. Yeah. That so has structure, order, and stories. So Tom Stoppard would be a much. So Tom Stoppard was kind of a. Or he is, he's still alive. He kind of inherits what Samuel Beckett was trying to do, but he brings more order to it. And so he takes that absurdism and then um, reads Shakespeare through it. And so that's how you get Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. It's basically Shakespeare meets Waiting for Godot. Because you just have Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. The whole premise of that play is Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are talking after Hamlet's Hel- Hamlet's left them, uh, asked them to leave to go and get killed. So you have the stuff that happens before that. And then you have the stuff that happens after that. And it's basically them just talking about what's going to happen and not really understanding as they're little players in this world that's bigger than them. And it's absurd. And so it's an, it's actually a better play than this one. But what was I saying? Premise, Jake. I can't go on. I'll go on. I can't go on. I'll go on. 
What was chaos? I have a question. Order. My heart yeah. will go on forever. I can fly, Jake. <laughs> I'm king of the can world. You king of the world. <laughs> <laughs> Rose, this is where we first met. No, it's not. It's not even the line. Jack, this is where we first met. Let me on the door. People should be excited to know that there's still more context. <laughs> oh yeah, I go. You, what's his relationship with the church, man? That's what I want to know. Oh, he grew up in the church, but then he grew to hate it. Well, yeah, of course he did. But I, I assume the Irish Catholic Church, I guess. Uh, yeah. In fact, his dad was a descendant of the Huguenots. Um, they were Catholic members son. of the Anglican Church of Ireland. Ah, so there you go. But later in life, he would reject it. Oh, fun little side fact about uh, Samuel Beckett. Mm. We can't go without saying this. We can't Godot without saying this. Yeah. Let's see if you guys can guess where this is headed. Because I like to imagine. So scene, let's set a scene. He's driving mm. a young man to school. Mm-hmm. And Samuel Beckett being depressed mm-hmm. and sad. Mm-hmm. He says, I don't think I can go on. And I mean it. And then the little boy in the back says, does anybody want a peanut? Because he used to drive Andre the Giant to school. <laughs> Wait, what? What? Isn't that the character from uh, Princess Bride? Yeah, yeah, it's Andre the Giant. Yeah. So, so Samuel Beckett used to drive Andre the Giant to school and you just made up this story. And yeah, but, he'd really, but he really did drive Andre okay. the Giant to school. I, I find I your got, story to be inconceivable. <laughs> oh. Air five. Nathan. Air five. No, we said air five, five. and then we gave each other a real five. Really it's talk. absurd, man. Yeah. <laughs> we said air five. <laughs> and then we gave a real five. And we're not supposed to because of coronavirus. Oh, right. I'm going to use some hands. Yeah, me too. Yeah, you probably should give me some too. Thanks. Yeah, I don't know where those hands have been. I could tell you. Oh, what? I believe you could. <laughs> They've been here in this room the whole time. I've seen them. Oh, yeah. They don't leave that body. Nope. <laughs> That's one of my rules. So that was a fun fact, right? And I staged it in such a fun way. <laughs> yeah. Yep. All right, That's great. That's a fun fact. Uh, thank you. Um, but yeah, that, that, uh, that answers your question there. That's where he went, Anglican Church of Ireland. And guess what? What? He didn't stay a member. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> in fact, much like Joyce, who grew up um, strongly... In a, in, a ca- in a very committed Catholic family, he rejected it pretty hardcore later in life and embraced the tenets of a, at least a strong agnosticism, sometimes an atheism. With Beckett, you just never really could know because he was a lot like Bob Dylan in some senses where he was, was a very intentionally obscure about what he meant with things. So you heard that new crazy um, John, John F. JFK song by Bob Dylan? I have. Yeah. I liked it fine, I guess. I did too. Um, it was cool. Whatever. I listened to it twice, but I also was in a room enclosed with paint fumes, so that may have been part of the reason. Couldn't have heard anything. Paint fumes can't harm you. There you go. Paint fumes can't harm you. Spoken Not like anymore. someone who's painted. Unless you pulled out some really old school paint from 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Did you pull out some old school paint from 20, 30 years ago? Mm-mm. Okay. We, in some kind of weird industrial setting where you're using industrial coatings no probably the paint fumes didn't do anything to you yeah it's a long song i still haven't listened to it yet okay you're acting as though i shouldn't have like there was a question whether or not i should like it no i okay good but i mean a lot of people seem to either like it or think it's stupid oh that was fine it had some really strange lines like rub-a-dub-dub or something yeah no but 
I don't know. It's Maybe Dylan. I just don't respect Dylan enough to me. It's just like, I don't know, that's Dylan. Like Rub-a-dub-dub in a Shakespeare quote? Probably. The, uh, I double, mean, Murder double. Most Foul is the name of it. Yeah. So that's well, yeah, that's... Shakespeare. Yeah, it's uh, it's echoing Shakespeare there. And you got um, Double Double Boil and Trouble and all that stuff in Shakespeare. But he's always done stuff like that. Yeah, and so... He's a Nobel yeah. Prize winner, for crying out loud. Or a Pulitzer yeah. Prize winner. What is he? Bob Dylan? What did he oh, win? Oh, he won the Nobel Prize. Yeah. Much like... Samuel Beckett. Mm. Oh, yes. Yeah, good transition back. Yep. So, guys, some people think of Beckett as the last true, I'm going to say it because I have to say it in every episode, modernist. Mm. Some people think of Beckett as the first true postmodernist. What do you think of him as, Brandon? I think of him as probably the postmodernist. I really don't see him as being much of a modernist, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, try to think who he falls more in line with. <laughs> does he seem like a Joyce and a T.S. Eliot to you? Not really. Or does he seem more of what you would imagine to be postmodernism? Well, that's because postmodernism uh, was heavily influenced by... Modernism? Li- modernism. What? World War II. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, there we go. Instead of World War I. It's like the, the watershed moment. I'm so confused. <sighs> pretty much, pretty soon, what, people. What are we talking about? I know. I don't know. I can't go on. I'll go on. <laughs> Let's hang ourselves. Pretty soon, people. Will go on. <laughs> I can fly. <laughs> you need my belt, <laughs> Rose. This is where we first met. Wow. Why can't I do that line, <laughs> Jack? Jack. <laughs> this I'm is a story about Jack and Diane. All right, Brandon. The best they can. What? You hey, about life goes on, even after the thrill of living is gone. gone. Hey, that's very Beckett. I bet he was inspired by Beckett when you were at that. Slurping on a chili dog over here outside yeah. the Tasty Freeze. The is there dog. a more disgusting line in modern music than slurping on chili dogs? Outside the Tasty Freeze. I just want to register my hatred for that lyric. Who slurps chili dogs? I don't know. Is he licking the chili off? Is he <laughs> literally inhaling the dog like Kobayashi Maru or whatever that guy's name is? The guy that inhales hot dogs for a living? You know <laughs> yeah, that guy? Kobayashi Maru. <laughs> what, what, what's Captain his Kirk. Yeah, and, yeah. And Captain Crunch. Captain Crunch. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know the guy. Who's, what's the name of the famous hot dog eater? Brandon? <laughs> oh, boy. Gotcha. Oh, man. <laughs> You're not that famous. Uh, what's, what's the, what's the you know the guy that eats hot dogs? Yeah, they're hot dogs. None of us know. None of us are follow hot dog eaters like you do, apparently, Nathan. I have seen a couple hot dog competitions in my time, Brandon. Competed in them. What's that? Where'd Competed? you place? <laughs> what place did you get? <laughs> People can't see my tears. <laughs> Let's make fun of Jake's wart. <laughs> you want to team up, Brandon? Oh, we got to talk about existentialism. That's where this was headed. Yeah. Existentialism. Existentialism. Guys, there's only a couple more things to talk about. We just got to get through this. We got to do this. Existentialism. Joey um, Chestnut? Joe, is it no, Joey Chestnut? It's, he's a Japanese fella. Is that the guy that has the tigers? Joey Chestnut. Is that what that, uh, people are watching that Netflix? No, that's not the guy that has the tigers. There is a guy who goes by Kobayashi, but he's been beaten by Joey Chestnut multiple times. Well, I didn't say the number one hot dog eating guy in the world, Jake. I just said a famous hot dog eating contestant. Well, if you just search the internet for hot dog competition, it brings up the stuff about this guy named Joey Chestnut. 
because he's the world record holder and and he had to dethrone though this guy named Kobayashi Maru or something which, like that. But he Takeru Takeru Kobayashi, and he dethroned him in 2016. Well, I haven't been in. I haven't been on the hot dog eating scene since. <laughs> oh, you left the hot dog scene. Yeah, I left it behind. <laughs> oh, Joey man. Chestnut hadn't risen up through the ranks by the time that you had left them. The name Joey Chestnut does sound familiar. Don't pretend like you guys haven't watched hot dog eating contests before. I haven't. I but these have pictures not. are disgusting. Sorry. They slurp them down. You never seen what I, they do? I it's, do. I have seen what they do because I've seen like ESPN highlights of it. Yeah, it's disgusting. This is a well, vile competition. Force it down their throats. No. They slurp water. No. They, yeah. Yeah. It is like it's they're slurping on chili dogs. Slurping on chili dogs. Oh, boy. It's disturbing. Yeah. You know who would have been, made nightmarish plays out of this reality? Anyone. Samuel Beckett. Okay. <laughs> Can you imagine a Samuel Beckett play centered around? Called slurping, slurping on, on a chili dog. If he had had professional eating competitions in his time, there's no way Estrogen and Vladimir would not have been having a hot dog eating competition <laughs> during this play. <laughs> Probably the wisest thing anyone's ever said about waiting for dogs. <laughs> <laughs> it on chili dogs. It's actually sucking on chili dogs. Yeah, that's what that's worse. See, my brain actually made it better. Sucking on chili dogs is just a disgusting line. Like it's not a popsicle. Anyways, um, <laughs> Beckett's fun. Have we made the point that he He's was great. an intentionally obscure guy who really wasn't very public about the way you should interpret his works and therefore you could either see them as true absurdism or actually making fun of absurdism no that's an interesting point because i mean you can read him either way you can read waiting for godot as actually being an existential postmodern player you can read it as being a absurd critique of it whichever one floats your boat i don't know it's hard to parody comedy you know it's hard to it's hard to out absurd absurd which is what existentialism is I mean, so you guys had a great episode of Sound of Sanity that you did on existentialism, right? We did. Didn't you guys talk about... We talk, we use we, the word existential like every chance we get, but... Well, I, probably you're thinking of our Jordan Peterson episode. Yeah, that's right. We talk about Kierkegaard and... Yeah, so existentialism has its roots in 1800s philosophy with Kierkegaard and with Nietzsche. Um, Nietzsche's fame, claim to fame was in saying that was God was dead and that there really is no truth to life and that the greatest people are the ones who can get rid of their herd mentality and truly embrace unique, authentic identities. And that one of the ways that we do this best, and so that, was, that would be the Ubermensch, someone who can just completely overcome the herd mentality of the world surrounding them and communal laws and restrictions, the things that keep all of us in check. This Ubermensch would be completely above that. And one of the best ways to do this, he was a big follower. He loved the image of Dionysus mm-hmm. and the Dionysian coat, uh, cult coat. <laughs> cult in, so Dionysus was... Not as nice as Joseph's coat. Yeah, not as nice as jo- Joseph's coat. And so he has this one where Dionysus comes up on the, on the stage, the theater, and there he is. You look confused. I was trying to remember what the acronym COAT meant. Oh, COAT? COAT, no, C-O-A-T. Is it an acronym that... I think so. You looked that up. Um, anyways, and so one reason he would go to the theater is because Nietzsche really thought, this is going to get us to existentialism. Don't worry. <laughs> Don't worry, children. I got to say something, and I'm just rambling. And so Nietzsche 
No, actually, this was all pre-planned. Isn't this fun? Oh, this was scripted. I can't go on. I'll go on. Co- Me- coalition to oppose the arms on. trade. Ah, there you go. Champion of all time. Uh-huh. Nietzsche, that coat. Mm-hmm. The philosophy. Champion of all time. Mm-hmm. Anyways, that's what I meant. He's so, the coat. I'm the goat. But he thought one of the only ways to battle the lack of reality mm. was through the illusion of reality. And the way to get to an illusion of reality was through art. And so Nietzsche was actually a huge champion of the arts. In fact, Richard Wagner was yeah. who he thought was the Ubermensch. Yep. And Wagner thought Nietzsche was awesome. Yeah, they loved one another. Yep. Mutual and, love fest. And you know who else loved Nietzsche? Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> Got him. <laughs> <laughs> and anyways... <laughs> Lots and Nietzsche nice then would go crazy like later in his life because he Hitler. got because we think he got syphilis. Disclaimer: No nice people like Hitler. No, they don't. Who had Sisyphus? <laughs> Sisyphus had syphilis. Oh, Sisyphus pushed the that mountain. Sisyphusian hero, Nietzsche, the pre-Sisyphus had syphilis. The pre-Sisyphus had syphilis. The pre-Sisyphus had syphilis. Moses supposes your roses are toses. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the rain in Spain falls mainly in the plain. <laughs> Sisyphus. As Nietzsche said. <laughs> Anyways, so there was also, uh, I guess for our purposes, Kierkegaard's not quite as influential a figure or as so important. People can go and they can read Kierkegaard. Really, what, like what's the basic tenet of Kierkegaard? The question is whether or not Kierkegaard, and yeah. some might even argue Dostoevsky, are the founders of, or the the groundwork of modern existentialism, but they are both in a different category. They are in a different, so... They're not in a different category, but they're not like Nietzsche's the first. In the sense that Kierkegaard really emphasized the importance of faith, right? And right. The, the Knight of, of Infinite Resignation who showed up earlier tonight yeah. or earlier on this recording, that's a Kierkegaard term. But Kierkegaard was still rooted in truth and reality and Christianity and Christian thought. Very much so. Nietzsche was rejecting all of that, and the important thing is to realize how he turned to art as a solution, and we talked... Kierkegaard tried very much to just be Solomon. It's all absurd, yeah. therefore God. Yeah. Yeah, but that, and so Nietzsche, though, would go this other route, which is where Sartre and Camus would follow yeah. years later, and where absurdism and postmodernism would have their roots, and so this is all converging with the stuff we talked about with the cults of the artist and st- with the last episode coming out of romanticism of Walter Pater and with those guys, right? This is just its own brand of that. So those guys were very conservative in trying to do that within a philosophical system that not even, it wasn't even concerned with philosophy. Those, they were just called esthetes, but they were really doing the same thing. They were all just worshiping art for art's sake. But Nietzsche was making a philosophical principle out of it. And so in some ways it's much nastier because I, I, I have a beef, personal beef with philosophy. I'm not quite sure as a discipline whether or not it's necessary because usually philosophy is just theology light. But anyways, people can listen to the whole book in the oeuvre to hear my constant beef with philosophy. It goes, I, I think it's just personal because Plato wanted to throw all the poets out of the city. I'm like, well, you know what? We're going to have a whole lot more fun in our poet city. So, And then we're going to come and we're going to tackle you, Plato. <laughs> yeah, that's what poets <laughs> yeah. are known for. Yeah. And Brandon, known for beef. That's right. I am known for beef. Where's the beef, Nathan? <laughs> I can't go on. It's on your stomach. I'll go on. It's My heart will go stuff. on. My heart will, yeah. I can fly. Jack, <laughs> this is where we first met. <laughs> <laughs> she corrected herself. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well done, Rose. Well done. Uh, there's an absurdly expensive necklace. Second on chili dogs. Yeah, oh, right. boy. What a stupid line. <laughs> the all-American experience. Second on chili dogs. No. So that's where existentialism came from. <laughs> yeah. Nietzsche can suck on some chili dogs. He could. He, oh, man, that mustache of his. Have you ever mm. seen a picture of him? Yeah. He had a huge mustache. Can yeah. you imagine chili being all in that thing? Ugh. You know, Brandon, very few <laughs> days go by that I don't imagine the chili in Nietzsche's mustache. Yeah. And I, folks, if you don't make that our t-shirt, the, just the chili in Nietzsche's mustache, I think. Few days go by where I don't think of the chili in Nietzsche's mustache. What a great shirt. <laughs> that would be a great shirt. <laughs> you know what? I think that it was imagining the chili, the chili in, Nietzsche's... in Nietzsche's mustache that actually is where we get Albert Camus' brand of existentialism. Because if people know anything about it, John Paul Sartre was kind of the father of French existentialism. Mm-hmm. And so what he wanted was so he had this conundrum. He said that. And this goes back to Rene Descartes, where he says, I think, therefore I am. And so he was thinking, he, was, he realized that philosophy has always presumed that there's a deep essential meaning to man. Right? You go all the way back to Aristotle, Plato, they said, there's a form, there's an essence to everything. And so there is something about humans that make them human. And Jean-Paul Sartre looked at that and he said, no, we're just genetic masses of cells. There's nothing that pre-exists our, us as a human. So we create our own existence. In other words, existence we existence pre-exists. That's a weird way of saying it. But existence is before essence. And so therefore, you create yourself. Mm. And this is, this is what existentialism is. It's called existentialism because you exist before you are, basically. And what they mean by that is that you, every day, through your actions, and choose to be a certain type of person. And you can let societal restrictions and codes of ethics and all these things and religion especially was a big no-no for Sartre. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no, 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 that's no. right. You can let these things choose who you are or determine who you are or you can determine this for yourself through authentic action. And he said one of the ways, and so if you've ever read his play Nausea, what it is is this guy, and so we especially, so he was, he a little, uh, this may or may not, maybe people find this interesting. So he was in the line of philosophers known as phenomenologists. And what they were interested in was the nature of consciousness and especially the nature of consciousness as it related to what you perceive. Mm-hmm. And so Nietzsche really didn't think that thinking or thought could actually get these revelations to you, but it was actually just observing the world and the weight of reality surrounding you. So in his little story, nausea, I'm really <laughs> mad at myself for knowing all this stuff. <laughs> In his, in his story, Nausea, Sartre has his character sitting outside and it's like the trees start to bleed and seep towards him. Cool. And he just realizes that reality in essence is this horrible monstrosity surrounding him. And there's this responsibility to bring your sort of order to reality. Got to make your own meaning, man. And that means you, ha- you bear the responsibility of making meaning out of this nothingness. Yep. Thus being a nothingness, right? And so... Um, do 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 phenomenologist anyways do, do, and he said in one of when so the only phenomenologist 
Okay, so one of the ways that me, that John Paul Sartre thought that you had this revelation about life, about where you saw authenticity as being essential to yourself, was not only through observation of nature and the reality around you, not nature, but just things, stuff, mm. but was through the consciousness of death. It was called death consciousness. In other words... <laughs> Uh, isn't this fun uh, I can't go on <laughs> I will go on my heart will go on Rose uh, I can fly we met <laughs> I'm I believe the world. I can fly <laughs> I believe I can touch the sky this is making us lose our minds people. This, is what we, sauce. this is what we do for you <laughs> this is what we do Hey, Brandon, by the way, I came it's up with like a hilarious joke. Yeah. You want, oh, boy, I don't like that line. Sucking on Chili Dog. Why did he write that? Was that supposed to be good? You ready for this, Brandon? Yeah. More like John Paul Fart. That's pretty great, Nathan. <laughs> Probably no one's ever thought of that one before. <laughs> anyway, so the reason the death was so important for John Paul Sartre. What was is it, it called? The death conundrum? Death consciousness. The death consciousness. It's because it, it shows the reality that we're just objects in the face of a world of objects. And so therefore it draws the line of the burden that we bear as individual actors in the world. Mm. And so therefore the only solution Memento is more cowbell. Is in is authenticity, and that's where the authentic self versus things that he would call like bad faith. Bad faith would be doing what we do every Sunday, worship with other Christians. Yeah, you're because you're not. Yeah, which goes back to herd mentality. All these things, and so John Paul Sartre was basically just doing an updated Nietzschean philosophy. Because the answer is if if really philosophy can't give us ultimate answers because we're not looking for truth, we're not looking for knowledge. If what we, if how we come to realization of the burden we have in the face of reality, and because of objects around us, right, through death, through this sort of consciousness, guess what the solution is? Once again, it's art, and that's why Jean Paul Sartre, Jean Paul Fart, (laughs) 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 got him. (laughs) That's why a lot of his output was short stories like Nausea Mm -hmm. or plays like No Exit. Yeah. Anyways. He had a proselyte. <laughs> oh, look, Beckett's here. Oh, you had a proselyte. <laughs> oh, you had a proselyte. Where's me lucky charms? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Who's the proselyte, Brandon? Albert Camus. Albert Camus. Albert Camus. And what Albert Camus brought to... So basically, he believed most of what Sartre said, but he had his own little twist, and his <laughs> twist was just a little bit of lemon and lime. <laughs> Cool and it's wonderful. John it's, it's absurdism. Fart. And what he realized was, or what he asserted was that existence in the face of the reality of what life is, nothingness, is absurd. To have to exist is absurd. And so his most famous philosophical work is the Mythos of Sisyphus. <laughs> the Mythos of Sisyphus. Myth- 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 <laughs> <laughs> and it's that work that he starts out by saying that in light of this, in light of existential truths, the only important philosophical question is the question of suicide. Yep. Why should we not kill ourselves? It's the last question. It's the, the last. only important question left. We have exhausted it all. Yep. And he says that right is- Right now, we've come to the end of it all, and there's one question left for philosophy to take up. The question of suicide. 
And so the myth of Sisyphus we all kill ourselves? D- tries to deal with this question. And so, of course, he doesn't have the courage to do it. So he's got to come up with his own. He has to come up with an answer way. as to why. Yeah. Mm, the courage of his lack of convictions, if you will. Yeah. And that really all, it's just an excuse for him not to have to kill himself because yep. really the answer is, yeah, you have no reason. Go ahead and do it. Uh, kill somebody else. Yeah. Do whatever you want. That's the answer he came to in um, The Stranger where the guy shoots someone randomly and that's the flashing burning insight. So that's moment of death consciousness, that that moment of self-revelation where you realize the absurdity of life, that's all that The Stranger's about. And it's just vacuous and empty and whatever. It's We narrowly avoided reading it one year. I don't remember yeah, what was swapped out. I'm sure out we're making we'll maybe we're maybe we're, we're making will. people off uh, making people mad by just tossing it off like that. But I mean it really is that empty. And so the myth of Sisyphus is about Sisyphus pushing the rock up the hill and then it rolls back down. And then mm-hmm. so the question is, why does Sisyphus do this? Why doesn't he just kill himself, right? Mm. Wouldn't that be the better solution? Because that really is all that reality is, is just pushing a rock up a hill every day. The absurdity of it. It makes no sense. We can't bring meaning to it. It's a million people pushing a million so, rocks up a measly little yeah. hill. Sartre and... Watch it roll back so down. S- <laughs> Sartre, dog, Sartre and Nietzsche... This is fun. <laughs> Sartre and Nietzsche, their answer was art. For Camus, the answer is because we have to bear the responsibility of Why? doing it. Why? Why? Well, that's, he just says he in just the end. He just asserts it. He just asserts it. And in Ex the end. assertion. Yeah. And so he it's says, because he has brilliant. to assume that there's a reason. And so his answer is you have to imagine Sisyphus happy. Basically, that's it. As Sisyphus just comes to terms with the fact of his reality and just does it. Imagine. So that's why the famous Boo. last line. The famous last line he of that. Takes pleasure in his work. It's imagine Sisyphus happy. Imagine Sisyphus and that's supposed to give happy. You, that's supposed to give you some sort of hope. And so out of this existentialism, out of this absurdism, you realize where Beckett is kind of trying to fit into the conversation, which in light of this, it's really interesting because Beckett's such an inscrutable figure. In light of existentialism, you kind of can see where the people who try to say that Beckett really is tongue-in-cheek making fun of this sort of thinking as well through his art, because he's not giving you art that really glorifies any of this or tries to make the reality an illusion that's better and worth bearing, right? No, it's all pretty squalid. It's all pretty squalid and horrid and horrific. And also, he's not showing you that really it's worth pushing the stone up the hill every day, right? Mm -hmm. You don't see Esther John and Vladimir smiling you kind of get the sense that maybe even though he believed existentialism, there is, there is evidence that he believed it to, a, to an extent. He also saw the absurdity of it. And his plays aren't offering the easy solutions that Camus and Sartre wanted to offer, right? It's not just smile and bear it, grin and bear it, which is basically Camus' philosophy. Yeah, weird. That really is his philosophy. It's just grin and bear it, take yep. it. It's not Sartre's where you just are, well, make art because that's about the best you can do. Because you need some transcendence in your Right. And it's not like, you don't get the sense that he's trying to be authentic with his plays. It's just, this is, he's found the one note that he can strike and he does it over and over again. Like, you know a Beckett play as soon as you read it. It's squalid. It's kind of funny. It has, it has the feeling of like the low the low class portions of a shakespeare play yeah. just with a, just through the lens of an absurd absurdism i mean you can imagine estragon and vladimir walking out of a shakespeare play 
right? They would, you could, are walking into one too. You imagine, I mean, these characters kind of fit into that category too. So he is participating in comedic theater in that sense. It just is, doesn't follow a plot. It doesn't follow a structure. And that is where we finally get the last thing I wanted to talk about, which is the theater of the absurd, which was a real thing that happened. It was closely kind of related to existentialism, also related to the other movements that were happening around the time, surrealism, Dadaism, all these things that dealt with the absurd. Dadaism and surrealism, they're, um, oh, what's his name? Um, the guy who did the melting time clocks. Dolly. Dolly. He's the most famous ex- uh, surrealist. Andre Breton was a French surrealist who walked a lobster. That's his claim to fame. <laughs> And they were just guys who liked to defy our expectations. And in some sense, Beckett's fitting into that. It's like he real, you realize that shock can sell. It's like a circus, a freak show. And if you know that people have expectations and you attack those expectations, you make people uncomfortable, you deal with things that are dark and squalid, then it's going to sell. People are going to first be scandalized. So Stravinsky with uh, Rites of Spring, and, and he made everybody, this was a little bit earlier, but still, that was the sort of, and that wasn't Stravinsky's intent, but these guys wanted to have that. Everybody leaving in an uproar from the Parisian theater, but then eventually they realize, well, I kind of liked that as well. And so they go back to it and they go back to it. Uh, one of the, the guy who came up with it was Esselin, a, a critic. And here's what he said of it. The theater of the absurd attacks the comfortable certainties of religious or political orthodoxy. It aims to shock its audience out of complacency to bring it face to face with the harsh facts of the human situation as these writers see it. But the challenge behind this message is anything but one of despair. It is a challenge to accept the human condition as it is in all its mystery and absurdity and to bear it with dignity, nobly, responsibly, precisely because there are no easy solutions to the mysteries of existence, because ultimately man is alone in a meaningless world. The shedding of easy solutions of comforting illusions may be painful, but it leaves behind it a sense of freedom and relief. And that is why, in the last resort, the theater of the absurd does not provoke tears of despair, but the laughter of liberation. And the four guys he really focused on were, I believe his were Harold Pinter, Pirandello, Ionesco, and Samuel Beckett. But uh, Jean Genet is in there as well, Tom Stoppard. All these guys get lop, uh, lumped into the same into the same category. So... Couldn't have been Pinter. He was later. Who are the guys? Oh, the four that he had. It's right here. Arthur Adamov, Eugene Ionesco, Jean Genet, and Samuel Beckett. But that's what he, this, this is a critic trying to say that Beckett fit into this category. But again, Beckett's an interesting figure because you don't, even re- reading this play and even reading some of his later stuff, you get the sense that, is he really trying to challenge us to see, to have any hope within the despair? Is he really trying to say that the world is one of despair? Or is it just that the theater he's presenting um, gets its art from that sort of representation? You know, it's hard to, with Beckett, it's really hard to say that that's how he sees the world. What if he was just a crass commercialist who read the signs at the time yeah. and knew it would it fill seats? Like Faulkner with Sanctuary. So, yeah, and so that's Beckett. Um, inscrutable, sometimes funny. And probably not really worth reading unless you like that sort of thing. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe in another life. I don't know. I liked his dialogue. It was cute. It was fun. Yeah. It was, he he does good calisthenics with words. He's a talented writer. Yeah. 
the words pile up on top of each other and it's fun what they do and there's little verbal fireworks and solos kind of guitar solos with words and like lucky's long like speech. lucky's long speech is wonderful and the way that the two guys play off of each other like it's about as good as you could hope a thing like this could be <sighs> anything else brandon no that's all i had well how many bananas out of a hundred do you give to fart? Three hundred and seventeen. Jake, how many farts out of apple do you give to Titanic? Chili dog. <laughs> Slurping on one. Sucking on one. Mm. <sighs> I don't even know if I want to do <laughs> yeah. donor shoutouts. Uh, I don't think they should get. We should just do one big donor shoutout to all of them. Okay. Chili dog. I can't go on. My heart will go on. Rose. I can fly. I can fly. <laughs> king of the world. Sucking on chili dogs. Mm. If anyone out there is tempted to suck on chili dogs. Don't. What if Jackson Pollock painted with chili? <laughs> Sounds delicious. <laughs> <laughs> Look, donors, I just, I, you know... I don't want to dignify, I don't want to, I don't want your, I don't want the slightly absurd theater of the absurd segment that is donor shout out to have this context. Yeah. I think the theater of the absurd is kind of fun when it exists in a context of, you know. The contextless. Of something else. (sighs) We, uh, here, we'll, we'll compose a. Review. A review for you. Yeah. By the way, thank you to those of you who have recently wrote reviews on itunes or what have you we appreciate we appreciate that and we want more we want more give us we don't have enough yeah give us a five-star review and we're going to dictate it to you now please write fat on banana chili slurping king that's gonna get us get get this person banned Please would you write to my heart. It is not a sorry chili dog today. Is that going to get them banned, Nathan? I love here. I'm going to dictate one, that one for them. I love this podcast. It's great. The three gentlemen are charming. The discussion is intelligent. Wipe that chili out of your mustache, Nietzsche. <laughs> That might be the shirt. (laughs) (laughs) Booking Today, written, produced by, and who cares? It was written by Samuel Beckett, produced by Brandon. Until chili dogs. Banana. <laughs>